There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Check out the new sporty and spacious Renault Arcana in petrol and full hybrid. Guaranteed delivery, low AP or finance and 48-hour test drive. Visit blackstonemotors.ie. You're very welcome to Thursday Afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio Straight to Business. Today, my first guest is a great friend of ours, but she's been away for a while and we just copped in recent days that she's back in Dublin. She set off to Australia to visit her mum back in February 2020 for four weeks, waving goodbye to her husband, John. Little did she think it would be a couple of years before she'd be back in Ireland. Monica McInerney, delighted to have you with us again. Hello, Jerry. It's beautiful to talk to you in the same time zone after two years, too. <laughs> yes, we did have a chat, of course, when you were in Australia. Well, Monica, I'm just thinking about you waving to John and saying, see you in four weeks. <laughs> oh, my God. Just remind our listeners what happened. Well, what happened was, um, unbeknownst to me, that a little thing called a pandemic was about to hit. I headed back home to see my family, um, and my mum especially, uh, as you said, back in February 2020. And um, and while I was out in Australia was when it was a, you know, declared a pandemic and all the flights were cancelled and the border, Australians shut, uh, shut tight its border. So rather than being there for just under a month, I um, just got back after two unexpected years, um, which is why I sound so much like Crocodile Dundee. I know. Um, but yeah just come back home so I just I landed here just a just a week ago back home in Ireland and um, so I'm acclimatizing Um, I've been back in my house and uh, finding things that I had left it's a little bit like waking up from a two-year coma I have to Mm. say it's um uh, like half jars of things that are now out of date or my boots were beside my bed where I must have thought okay I'll just get them when I get back and it looks like I kind of disappeared overnight so it's the strangest but most beautiful of things to come back there's a book in this can I suggest <laughs> to you who am I suggesting it? the the Diane uh, of novels number 13 the godmother's appearing while you were away as well but by god there is a story and a half of this Monica you must be frozen with the weather are you well, do you know, I love it. I was, I was laughing with John this morning. I've talked more about the weather since I've been back in Ireland for a week <laughs> than I did in Australia for two years. 
And I'd forgotten that, that just that, you know, just how much Irish people just adore to talk about the weather. And um, and I was lucky because when I landed, it was that, you know, the beautiful un- unseasonal warm days for a couple. And now today mm. it's the icy, icy weather. But I'm loving it. This is a terrible thing to say, I know. But I got so sick of warm, sunny days in um, in South Australia where I was living with my mum. Like every day, oh, another blue sky and another blue sky. <laughs> and uh, I'm just loving it here. I'm wearing coats and boots. You know, the boots I rescued from beside my bed, the cloud, the sky is different. You know, all the, as I said, all the conversations that I'm having with people about the weather, um, that's what, that's really making me feel like I'm home again. Oh, Monica, we crave those blue skies. We no, get them I rarely. I should I? It's terrible. It's a terrible thing oh, to say. Oh, God almighty, you're really rubbing it in now that you're back for sure. But you have made the point, which is so true. The weather dominates an awful lot of conversation. But listen, I want to talk about your mammy, Mary, and you arrive and she's this little tiny apartment and after what 30 odd years she has a daughter returning to live with her that was um uh, challenging would i say Oh, I think it's talking about sort of writing a book from my experiences. I think I could probably get a whole sitcom series and maybe a couple of feature films out of because um, I'm one of seven. I'm the middle of seven, and um, and so you know I grew up in this big rambling family house with all of us around. But as soon as Mum could, you know, um, sadly after my dad died about twenty years ago, but Mum has lived very very happily on her own in a very small apartment, and she only had a few cups and a few plates, and then inland me, you know, for, for inland me for um, for what she thought was a couple of weeks and then turns into two years, pretty much. Um, but we got on like a house on fire. We had a few little flare-ups. Um, but because I write uh, family comedy dramas, I swear to God, Jerry, I have enough material for another 20 books um, <laughs> from, from living there. And not just um, about living with your mum again as a, you know, going back as an adult. And, and like, you know, I'm 57, to go back and live with my 80-year-old mum. Mm. Um, but also the you know, watching my six brothers and sisters and kind of the, the resurgence of that jealousy that, oh, Monica's getting loads of time with mum. You know, how come we didn't get all that time? <laughs> and uh, so it was very, very interesting from a, you know, from a family observation point of view. But also, I mean, I know we were all talking about counting our blessings from the pandemic and, and uh, you know, our lives and, you know, obviously particularly looking at what's happening in Ukraine and, and, and that we're all, you know, we've come through it all in one piece. Um, but so many silver linings about um, really special time with my mum that if I had thought two years ago I can take time out of my life in Ireland and, you know, I'm just going to go and live with mum for a year or two. I would have thought that that's impossible. Um, And it it wasn't, and I did. And, boy, those memories will, you know, will will treasure those for the rest of my life. I know I will. A silver lining, you see, uh, and something that might not have happened ordinarily. But, hey, you had a third occupant of that (laughs) tiny little flat, a, a cat called Nicholas. That's right. My sister thought, oh, there might be a bit of tension between um, mum and Monica. So I'll introduce like a little bit of light relief. So she adopted a tiny kitten from a, res- a rescue shelter. And mum wasn't actually allowed, you know, she was renting at the time to have a, have a cat in her, her premises. So we said, oh, don't worry, nobody will know that the cat's there. Except the cat obviously took um, took up residence running back and forth across the front window of the house, of the, the apartment. So And we discovered that mum's landlords lived about two streets away. So every time they would have driven past, they would have seen this kitten running back and forth. Um, but we named the kitten Nicholas after Mum's Irish grandfather. And um, and it ended up being also a really special thing because I'd have loved to have had, you know, a, a, a mad about cats. And the entertainment and the distraction um, of, of having kind of a, the cat and also, you know, perfect for my sitcom and my TV, TV series and my novels and in the future, the idea of introducing a little animal as well into the mix. 
Well, Nicholas, no, this is it was happened before, Nicholas, because I want to tell listeners in case they didn't know, your first children's book has appeared as well. Marcy Gill and the Caravan Park Cat. Had <laughs> Nicholas anything to do with that? No, well, that was the weird thing, Jerry. I actually started writing that book five years ago because I've got 18 nieces and nephews. So in between writing my novels for adults, I would often write them, um, you know, short stories based on them, you know, their lives and a little bit of magic in them for their birthdays. So I had worked on lots of small children's stories and I started writing this one about five years ago and I thought, oh, actually, I reckon I might, you know, this might really have legs and I want to see if I can, you know, turn into a public published book. And in that book was a little black cat uh, called George and then when we adopted the cat Nicholas uh, he was the spit of George so mm. while I was unexpectedly at my mum's house in Adelaide editing Marcy Gill and the Caravan Park Cat um, I had this little black kitten who was the image of the book in the uh, the cat in the book sitting and sleeping on the manuscript <laughs> beside me so it was just strange like the whole world was so strange anyway and I felt like my artistic life was getting all muddled up with my real life, and um, yeah, it's been it's been. I, I don't think I've quite taken in what the last two years were like yet. You have a reservoir, never mind from your mum, but from the cat as well to build yeah. on in the children's genre. Oh my God, so you're going to be busy, busy, busy uh, ad infinitum. But here's the thing as well: poor John was back in Dublin, and eventually he did get to Australia. Um, and, you know, you moved out of your mum's then and the two of ye rented. We rented and then we did some house sitting and then we did a bit of Airbnbs. And um, so it's been very strange, actually. We kind of lived out of two suitcases for a couple of years. Um, well, you know, me particularly and then John for the time that he was there. And that was a very interesting um, process, actually, because, again, you'd think, you know, all the, you have your house and all your bits and pieces all around you and you think, no, you need everything that you've got. And then to realise, um, you know, that you can live just on, on a, a couple of suitcases. So I think philosophically, I mean, I promise I won't go into all of this now, but I've a lot to think about, about, you know, how uh, how much do you actually need um, to to be happy? And I, again, to go back to Ukraine, I keep thinking about these people that they've got, you know, 15 minutes notice, quick grab what you can and get out to save your lives. And I, you know, I had sort of a very leisurely time to decide what I needed to, to live with. And so I'm doing a lot of thinking about uh, what, you know, what do I need? Have I got too much stuff? Mm. Um, what do we, you know, what do we need to to survive, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm very philosophical today, Jerry. I think I must be jet-lagged still. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. And, and you know, in a world where the horror of Ukraine is going on, it is very difficult, I'm finding it, to detach yourself from that, Monica. Yes, it is. It is really because we can see what's happening to them so clearly and they're close to us. And, and I'm very conscious, like in Australia, it did feel like it was happening on the other side of the world. But, you know, I, I know some young men from here that, that volunteered to go out to Ukraine and, and saw some horrors and, you know, young Irishmen. And, um, and you think it's, it's just very close here and, and your heart just breaks for the, you know, for the poor people that have, have had to have their whole lives upended. So, you know, my life was upended for those two years, but mm. certainly it can, in comparison, I you know I feel like I, I have only things to be grateful for, nothing to you know oh, not a not a scarec of poor me because you know everything that happened while I was away. Um, as I said, there's so many silver linings to it. Yeah, for sure.
door. Uh, you mentioned the, the house and it was as if you woke up uh, from a sleep or a dream <laughs> for two years and you're right back in the house and you say, oh my God. What about your gardens and in general? Oh God, it was like a fairy tale garden when John got back because um, it hadn't been, nobody had been like John's a great gardener and he'd been working on it all the time, you know, when he was here and then he, had, you know, he left and was able to come out to me for different other reasons. And, uh, and then when he came back, um, fuchsia, it turns out, grows at the rate of knots. The fuchsia had taken over the whole garden. Uh, it was like some kind of mad Irish, you know, fairy tale garden. Um, so that's going to be interesting because, you know, he just had to cut everything back and kind of take a scythe and work his way through it. I was thinking he'd find, you know, like Rapunzel in the back of the garden or something in a tower. Um, so, it is, yeah, just to, to get yourself back to um, back to normal again, if there is such a thing after the pandemic. No, there's lots to be done, but there you go. Yet nature waits for no woman or man as John knows very well uh, on it goes regardless now what about the uh, the writing I know you're only uh, settling back in and that and as I said the Godmothers number 13 huge success for you again all around the world and the children's book what, what's, what's, what lies ahead in the uh, immediate uh, term for Monica McInerney in writing I'm actually working on three new books, um, Jerry, because I was so thrilled with the success of The Godmothers. And it was really beautiful because that's the one that you and I talked about. And it's mm. got a lot of chapters set in Trim and around Trim Castle and a lot of in County Meath. Um, so it was really beautiful to talk to Australian readers. And, you know, and lots of people said to me, when they can travel again, they're going to go to Ireland and they want to visit Trim. And, um, so I was pretty happy to hear that. So, mm. um, John's done a gorgeous thing. In the few days since I've been back, he has repainted my writing attic. I have a lovely little warm attic at the top of the house, obviously, the attic. Um, so I'm going to, starting Monday, I'm up up there working on um, these three new story ideas I've got. So I think I have so many, you know, just <laughs> so much material now um, that it'll, it'll probably read like science fiction, I should think, because I don't know if anyone would believe everything that's kind of happened. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I'm looking forward to that and being, you know, being in my own house and just, and, and seeing the 15 different sorts of weather, um, Irish weather outside my window every day, rather than just one blue sky is going to be mm. pretty nice too. <laughs> it's obviously had an effect and and we can hear that in you know what you've spoken to me about already for you you know much travel lady and you've been over and back to Australia in all the years you've been here as well and it's something we took for granted has that changed your outlook or what has happened changed your outlook on you know taking things for granted Oh, it really has. And as I said, I think it's still sinking in, really. Like, I knew the moment I got here, I, thought, I felt like I'm home. And it's interesting for me because, in, you know, as a 57-year-old, I've lived um, well, more, half, more than half of my life in mm. Ireland and, and, um, and Australia. And I was interested what, what would feel like home because um, that's a dilemma for, you know, anybody like me that, you know, that moves between countries. And it was beautiful to think, yeah, this is, this is home. I'm back home. Um, but I do feel, you know, I worry about... Um, it's a 24-hour flight. Will that be possible? What's happening with not only climate change, but the you know we're well with wars and there's a there is a feeling of fragility, isn't there, about the world for all of us? I think that all those things we took for granted that you know flying around here and there and um, and just this sort of a freedom um, that, that that does feel a little bit different. Um, and I, I think I'm still taking it in. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, ironically, after two years of really longing to be in my own house, and now I am. But now I just want to go, be able to go and visit my mum, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, and, and pat the cat. And now I can't. <laughs> ah, well. And the cat, and the cat just the cat dumped me, Jerry. It's just fell in love with mum, and it's all about mum now, anyway. So <laughs> I think you, uh, I was, I was a temporary owner. Ah, uh, look at please God that uh, you know you will be back again to see her uh, in the not too distant future. 
future. But in the meantime, you, as I said, you have so much material. Three books on the go. What's yeah. this space? Monica McInerney is about to burst out on the world again <laughs> with her fantastic creativity. Say hello to John. Lovely to catch up with you. And thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Gary. I really feel like I'm home uh, having talked to you. Thanks a million. Oh, <laughs> uh, Lord, I'm delighted to get uh, a chat with you there. I really am. And thanks for those kind words, too. Take care, Monica. Talk soon. Thanks, Gary. Bye-bye. 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 The wonderful Monica McInerney there back in Ireland after over two years when she expected to be away for just four weeks. Now, for the next while, things are going to move at a snail's pace on late lunch. When I tell you that I'm chatting to a snail farmer from Virginian County Cavan, his business is Inish Escargo. Peter Monaghan is on the line to talk to me. Hello, Peter. Hello, Jerry. How are you? There'll be no snailing about on late lunch from here on in. I'm only, uh, I'm only having a bit of a crack there. Which, anyway, look at welcome to the show. I'm fascinated by you and what you do. How did you get into this business in the first place? I suppose, Jerry, it's uh, probably 2014, 2015. Um, just found myself in a job that I, I kind of was very unhappy in, and. Uh, uh, I suppose we always kind of had a farming background here, but but could never really see um, a, f- a full potential to have a full time job in 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 farming. Uh, we keep sucklers here, so um, I've kind of always been, I suppose, um, kind of always been looking at something else. Whether it, be, it was forestry, I looked into the vegetables and I looked into fruit and 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 all these different things. But when I came across the snail farming in 2013. Um, it, it just it ticked all the boxes, and further into my research, then I, I, I found there was a huge, um, a huge market for the snails with a, with a, with a over a hundred thousand ton sh- shortfall every year. So mm. it, it, it ticked all the boxes, and the more I get into it, uh, the more I, I kind of fell in love with it, and 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 you know, it, it just have a huge passion for it now. You know, and you went and met somebody I've spoken to in the past on late lunch, Ava Milka down in Carlo, her I Gaelic escargot. She, I believe, she was a big help to you. She was. She was. I would have initially done my um, after I decided, you know, I'm going to take the next step. I would have went down to Eva to uh, complete one of her snail farming courses. Mm. So um, it was basically just the, the walk around the farm and the basics of the snail farming. Um, so after doing that, I kind of decided. Look, I've, I've read all the books. I've done all the research. Took some great advice from farmers over through Europe. I said, the only way I'm going to really learn about these guys and, 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 and you know, know if it's actually going to work is, is, is to go and buy them. Mm. So I went off and I bought 660,000 baby snails and uh, reared them, fattened them. And in, in the end, it went very, very well. So here I am now here today. I'm actually producing over 1.2 million snails every year on the, here on the farm. So... Um, Things have gone from from buying some baby snails into, you know, producing fattening snails, breeding snails, and uh, hopefully now I'm I'm starting up a training course myself for startup farmers. So yeah. things have uh, things have moved on very quickly, you know, and I'm, I'm quite uh, quite happy and quite proud of what we have here at the moment. Yeah, well done to you. You you really are a great fellow, and it's it's a wonderful wonderful story. Now talk to me about the snails themselves. Six hundred sixty thousand is the start off, it, and now one point two million. And um, what would the breed of snail? Would we be familiar with it? Uh, the breeding snail is the Helix Esportia muller. They're actually um, a native snail of Ireland, so the climate here is is perfect for them. Mm. Um, 
they're really used to our climate and the thrive here in our climate. There has been other snails tested here in Ireland. Uh, I actually, I actually tried a couple of other different types of snails while I was um, doing this. I kind of carry out a lot of research and development here and do a lot of experiments here on the farm. So uh, the, the Helix Esportia really thrives in our climate here. And um, you, know, the, the, you probably see them out in your back garden there, the wild snails. They're a little brown snail, so we're very familiar with them. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people, actually, you wouldn't believe it, they, um, they actually mix the snail up with the slug. So anyone that's doesn't know the difference between a snail and a slug. The snail is the guy with the shell on his back and the slug is the guy that yeah. he has no shell on his back. They're, they're kind of pets. So, so yeah, as a gardener myself, I know well what you're talking about and, and the distinction yeah. between them. But here, take us through the life of a snail. You, you know, you buy the... You know, I know you're you're breeding your own on that now, but say you, you, ha- you mentioned those 660,000 how does it work? Take us through their lifetime. How quickly do they uh, come to a size that they're edible? Yeah, well, I suppose if you take the example here now, uh, this year, 2022, here on, on, on our farm here, we would have kept 150 kilos to 300 kilos of fattened snails. Um, we keep them for our breeders. So mm. uh, I suppose when we get Christmas over, it's there, and into the second week of January, we go into the hibernation room. And we wake up uh, about 300 kilos of our breeding snails. Mm. Those uh, 300 kilos of breeding snails should produce in or around between 1 million to 1.5 million uh, baby snails. Okay. So when we, we take them out, we put them into our breeding room. So we have a special breeding room that has taken us probably four years to, to uh, get running uh, well. It's actually running very, very well now the last four years. So... Uh, they're, they're put into the breeding room and they're slowly wake, uh, waking up about, uh, for about two or three days. Mm. When they wake up fully, they will start breeding for about four weeks. Okay, and, and what does breeding entail? Do they mate and is, the, is there an egg or a spawn or what comes out? Uh, they breed, they, they actually, well, both of the snails, when they breed, the both of them actually lay eggs. They can lay up to about, probably at the moment they're laying here, about 120 to 150 eggs. Yeah, male so, and female both lay. But yeah. They Interesting. Both are, they, yeah. they both have the, the they both have the same uh, organism. So that, yes, um, both snails will will um, they, they call it a love dart. They will kind of stab each other, and uh, uh, both of them will will fertilize each other's eggs. So I see. Um, when when the four weeks is up, uh, I, I would introduce little pots. I suppose the the best way to describe them is small little flower pots they're about four inches by four inches mm. when I introduce these pots they lay for about eight weeks and believe it or not they'll actually lay their eggs probably two inches into the soil mm. so um, you could hope to expect then at, um, at the end of the laying you could hope to expect to have probably five maybe five thousand eggs in each pot Okay. so um, I take them from the pots which is it's, it's quite labour intensive at the moment I take them from the pots and put them into little containers where they will go into a damp soil and a small little bit of feed and they go into the incubation unit. Mm. They, they probably stay in the incubation unit then for about two weeks. In, 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 the, in, the, um, in their natural environment, I suppose, it would probably take up to 30 to 40 days for the, for the eggs to hatch. Yes. Um, we can speed it up to about 14 days. Okay. So um, when they... When they um, I suppose it's not really called hatching it's because they kind of morph into yes. into little snails yep. so when they come out of the hibernation room we bring them from the hibernation room out to the polytunnel the polytunnel can hold up to probably one million snails 
Um, it's planted with uh, forage rape and kale. Mm. So they go on to the, the forage rape and kale and you wouldn't believe in about, I suppose, two or three weeks they will have abs- everything absolutely eaten. So uh, we, we supplement them then with a high-protein uh, feed mm. that we, we buy in from France. And uh, we keep them there, Jerry, for about, uh, I suppose, eight weeks when then we take them from the polytunnel in probably May, in around May, depending on how well they're doing. Um, and we put them into our one-acre paddock, uh, which is uh, covered with a protective barrier around the outside. It's a galvanised around the outside on the bottom and uh, board netting on the top. Um, so they will go out there from May until approximately September or very early October, depending on when the weather gets cold, because mm. they start bur- burrowing then in, uh, towards the end of, of September. So that's when we, that's when we start our harvest, and that's when the when the really heavy hard work starts. And they're ready then. Are they, are they ready then? Are they edible at that stage? Well, what, what, we, what we do then, Jerry, is um, I was very lucky. Now I had plenty of help with the family here, so and um, we, we we can get our harvest done in four to six weeks. We can get our ten ton in within about four to six weeks. Okay. So um, when we bring them in, we put them on to purging tables. We keep them from food and water for about seven days and naturally this is all natural to the snail mm. because if he was in the wild uh, suppose when it's getting cold and the food is, is getting scarce they will go into hibernation so we're doing the exact same thing in the polytunnel it's, it's, mm. it's, it's very natural to them so they'll fall asleep um, after about seven days they'll completely dry themselves out and they'll clean themselves out also because they've had no food mm. so that's the stage then when we start uh, we, we'll wash them, take them off the tables and bag them into nets. They'll go into nets for uh, with about seven kilos in each net and into your little vegetable containers and then they're ready to go. And that's them? They're ready then? They can be eaten at that stage? They can be eaten at that stage fresh, yes. Um, we send them off to get processed in Greece, but uh, a lot of places, yeah, they, li- they like to eat them, eat them fresh. Just cook them straight out of yes. the bag and they're ready to go, do you know? You know, you mentioned grease and processing. Is there not an opportunity to process snails in this country? I, I believe there is, yes. Yeah. Um, at the moment, it's probably, it's, it's a big step, but I'm we're actually pricing a processing plant here ourselves to put one up here on the farm. Um, it's just about getting the right one that, that um, it takes the... That, that's not going to be too labour-intensive, I suppose. Yeah. A lot of the processing plants for small farms are very labour-intensive. So I'm trying to find one at the moment that's basically going to do everything for me and they're going to come out in jars like the bigger processing plants in Europe. So, mm. um, yeah, it's something we're looking at. But I, 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 I would I would agree with you. Like there, there, there has I have come across a few uh, seafood processing plants that, have, that, do, that are lying idle in the perfect time for ourselves, like between September and January, that I would love to see maybe getting up and running. But... Um, I suppose maybe the department and board B and that they're probably reluctant at the moment because there's 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 so few snail farms. Yes. So you'd never know. I I would hope um, that Innes Escargo here could maybe in two or three years' time have helped. You know, ten, yes. twenty, a hundred, two hundred, four hundred snail farms start up. Good. And that's maybe that's maybe when we could get the ball rolling and maybe mm. get bigger authorities in and uh, get the help then. But. I wouldn't. It doesn't really faze me that there's no um, processing unit here. Mm. Things are going good. There is a, a, a very good business here, and, and and there is a very very 
attractive wage here to be made on this if you put the work in uh, yeah. both for part-time farmers and full-time farmers. So I wouldn't let any any potential farmers thinking about starting up a snail farm, I wouldn't let any of those things put me off, do you know? Mm. Uh, so you've many options. You, you, you're looking, you, you're selling direct, as you say, uh, they can yeah. be processed. You have the option of, 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 of uh, supplying others uh, with those baby snails that you started with too. So you have a few options that you're looking at, the training as well, making this yeah. uh, a business, this business more widespread in the country. Let me ask you a couple of things. Um, you know, with the price of food going up on that, um, where do snails fit in? Are they expensive to buy? Are they an expensive product? Snails, but to sell to restaurants, which I haven't, um, mm. I haven't targeted restaurants too much now because I wouldn't sales and myself. I don't know would they go hand in hand. Okay, I, I wanted to concentrate more on getting the fundamentals right here on the farm. Yes. So, I haven't really um, approached too many restaurants okay. about selling the selling my products, but um, the prices into into restaurants uh, for snails are huge. They're absolutely okay. huge. Yeah, you're because the premium product. The premium product. Yeah. Like you're talking huge, huge money compared mm. to what we get. So for just to, snails. just to clarify again, what you're doing with the tonnage you have there? Where is that going now? Most of the tonnage will uh, up until the past two years. Most of the tonnage have been has, has been going to Greece for sale. For okay, um, yeah, yes. But okay. this year I've been overwhelmed with the with the with the amount of um, interest in the in the breeding snails. Mm. So this year probably most of our snails will be sold for breeding, okay. and then uh, whatever we don't sell for breeding, then it'll be sold for fattening. But um, nothing goes to waste here. It's, mm. it's uh, you know um, everything we everything we hatch and we we rear and we we fatten everything is used. You know, it's, mm. it's, um, yeah, things are going well and, and you know it's great just, to hear it. And, going forward. and um, obviously, when they're in the outdoor space, you have to net them over and protect them and that because uh, they'd be cleaned out of it by predators. I take it. They'd be completely cleaned out of it. I actually, I was thinking of doing that at the start because. Uh, Putting up a net over an acre is quite a job. Now, mm-hmm. and I have tried a few different ways um, of putting it up, trying to get it held up. It's 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 quite a job. But I have a method here at the moment that I can actually put my net up um, in probably in around April, and I can take it down then when the snails are out the end of September. So it's 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 prolonging the lifespan of the net, and also, you know. The wind isn't isn't taking it down in the middle of all these storms and stuff yes, like that. So, yes, yes, yes. Um, we, we've 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 come up with a, a good few different ideas here in in on the farm here, and and you know we're, we're quite happy with the way things are going here. Um, mm. At the start, it would it would have been very labour intensive. There would have been a lot of different things we were having to change uh, at the start of every year as regards feeding boards and nets and I say stuff like that. But I've come up with a method here now that. Uh, I've, I've, in in some process, I've taken up to fifty percent of the labour out of it. So, very good. Um, it's it's getting it's getting better every year, and I would hope with the research and development and all these experiments we're doing, I would hope um, that maybe we can come, come up with some some different ideas as well. Yes, and I, caviar and slime yeah. and, and and all that kind yeah, of. Yeah, because all oh, the caviar is talk about being a premium product. The snail, I know the caviar is an even greater a premium product. But you know what I admire yeah, about yeah. you. You're learning as you go along, you're innovating and you're moving to where uh, you will eventually be. Before we finish, may I ask you this? Do you like them to eat yourself? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I tasted them about six, seven years ago. And I said, look, I said, if I'm going to be a snail farmer, they were sitting, they were actually sitting on a table and I, I sat down to do a course um, and they were sitting on the table and I said to myself, Jesus, you know, if I'm going to be a snail farmer, I'm going to have to taste these. I can't, mm-hmm. be, I can't be rearing something that I'm not going to taste myself. So the God, I, I, I tasted them and... Uh, yeah, we got I had one, I had two, I had three, and I, I think I actually I had a dozen all in the one go, and they were they were delicious. They were absolutely, that was just fresh, uh, yeah. clean in in brine. So there was no there was no additives or preservatives or or flavourings in them. So they are quite tasty, Jerry. Yes, mm. they are. Yeah, yeah. I've tasted them myself in the past. There's nice chewing them as well, isn't there? I suppose there's a bit, there's a bit yeah. of a chewing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> there is for sure. Anyway, uh, you're you're a great news story, Peter, and I just wanted yeah. to highlight it today here on the show. Innes Escargot, uh, Virginia County Cabin. Watch this space. I wish you continued success. You too, Jerry. Thank you very much. The pleasure being on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me. Appreciate it. Take care now. Bye-bye. That's Peter Monaghan there. Great guy, isn't he? And spotted an opportunity and he's big time into it now and he's he's just great. He's great. He really is. And it's lovely to highlight a business like that that's making such progress. Late lunch, LMFM Radio. We have to take a short wee break. But don't you slip away anywhere. Callum Scott, where are you now? You're listening to Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. And remember, you can listen to us anywhere in the world on the app. Download the LMFM app or on your smart speaker. Yes, we're available all over the place. Thank you uh, for joining us on the show this afternoon. Uh, I know it's Virginia. Yes, I mentioned Peter Monaghan's snail farm is in Virginia. Uh, I lived there for the past 22 years but never knew about it. Yes, there are often things under your nose you never realise that there would be great for children to visit on school trips. Now, I'm not sure, Louise, whether he's into that, but I hear what that listener's mm-hmm. saying there and I understand this. Follow well. the trail of flying. <laughs> Simple as that. Anyway, here's the big question. And there's another message just popped in. I might just be a Philistine, Jerry, but nothing th- in this world could... Me- um, let me say that again I just might be a Philistine Jerry but nothing in this world could make me eat a snail what about you Louise mm-hmm. six months down the line when the prices go <laughs> rocket on everything might change your mind might be in the garden with the shovel snails are expensive Oh, uh, listen, you can't eat them. Oh, now we've got to get this straight. No, you can't. You can't eat them directly from a garden. Jesus, you'll have people poisoned all over the place. Jesus, don't do that. Don't do that. No, uh, they, they have to be purged. You heard him saying that and treated in a certain way. But anyway, Louise, give Peter a shout and see if we can get a few. And you and I will do a taste mm. test on the snails here on LMFM's Late Lunch. What do you think? Oh. Are you up for it? Can I cover them in like tomato you can ketchup cover, or you can, mayonnaise you, you, or something? You can put your mask that you have normally in your face over your eyes <laughs> and, and, and have a taste of them. And you can have your mayonnaise and your red sauce and everything with them. But get back on to Peter, see okay. if we can get a few, even if they're jarred up or whatever, whatever way they come, and we'll do a taste. Is that okay? Yeah, We'll okay. taste them. We'll I'm taste them and, and tell the listeners <laughs> what, what they're like. What is she like? Without her, can I have me mayonnaise, she was saying to me there. <laughs> Just, you'd wonder though what would pair that. You were saying a bit of lemon or, you know, if you were in a restaurant and it was served, what would sauce well, would you be served with? Well, you know, they come in jars flavoured as well. You know, they do, they, they flavour oh, them. Oh, you can get them in brine. They come in brine, you know, preserved yeah. in brine as well. But Peter was saying that fresh, they're gorgeous. You know what I mean? Mm. Not being jarred up or anything like that. We'll have to get... Th- a bit of garlic and oil. <laughs> 
garlic covers a multitude, mm. lemon, oil, all that type of stuff. But uh, I remember a few moons ago, myself and Seamus Farley, it was around Christmas time. Do you remember we were down yeah, in the Knightsbrook Hotel and there was a guy producing them down there. He's not in the business, I don't think, anymore, but we tasted them. Uh, we certainly tasted them on that day, myself and Seamus. And I was a bit squeamish tasting them first. But look, I've watched Rick Stein on the telly in Spain and tables loaded with them. Snail festivals. You know, would you eat them again? Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. they come here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd eat them again. Sure, it just reminded me there. You know what I've been told in the fridge? I must put it in the pot this evening. A cow tongue. Oh, I love this. I have a cow tongue in the, fr- in the fridge. Uh, it, it's back packed and all. I must take it out mm. and put it in the pot for a couple of hours with like bay jelly. leaves. And Do you like tongue? My mother used to always oh, cow tongue. Me you can't and beat it. And it was gorgeous. And then she stopped when there was, um, was there a disease or something going on? BSE and all. Something like Mad that. Cow so and that type of stuff. That, but that's, yeah. that's all gone. I love a cow tongue. Mm. And actually, you can press it and then slice it cold and eat it. But I love it hot. I love hot when it just comes out hot you have to take the skin off it and then press to slice it, it. like it bounces back like <laughs> it does oh. press it no you press you put weights on it to compact it after you take it out is of the it pot is it hairy oh it is and leathery but you see <laughs> what you do is you, you take the skin off it that's a different peel in it when it's just cooked burn the fingers of you. you you'd want asbestos fingers to peel it but you have a tap running beside you with the cool water putting your fingers in and out of it and you peel the tongue get all that leathery skin and, oh. and bubbly stuff knobbly stuff off it and then you have the flesh inside it is the most beautiful meat honestly it really is I must tell you a story how I and tricked fellas one back. time it doesn't talk back to you mm-hmm. it's done at that stage but just reminded me anyway we we will taste the snails. You get back in touch with Peter and we'll do it here live on the show. Coming up after our next break, she's trained her 1,000 winner. Yes, Greyhound trainer Tina McGrain is joining me. Now, my next guest on the show has reached a remarkable milestone. She's a Greyhound trainer from Kells out Oldcastle Way. And when I tell you that recently, at the very start of April, she trained her 1,000 winner at Dundalk Stadium. Not all at Dundalk Stadium, but the thousand winner was at Dundalk Stadium. I'm delighted to say hello to Tina McGrain. How are you, Tina? Hello, Jerry. How are you? I am great. Well, congratulations. Like a thousand winners is a hell of a haul. Do you remember your first one? Um, I, Yeah, I suppose I've been training since 2000. Mm. Um, and back then I only had two dogs in training for other people. So um, my first one would have been a dog, a little bitch called Shine, Shine and Star. Mm, you see that? You remember the first. And what was the thousand? Um, his name was Jet Doyle. Very good. So was, yeah. So for, betwixt and between another 998 of them from the first to the <laughs> thousand as well. It's a lot, a lot of wins. And, you know, when you, when you reflect on where it all began for you, you mentioned two dogs back in 2000. How did you get into them? Is it in the family? It is, yeah. My dad would have always had some dogs, um... As I grew up, we always had a couple out in the back. So I basically spent my childhood surrounded by greyhounds. Mm. And um, I just loved them. Yeah. I'm out in the pens with them and um, just got the bug. No. I always went, <laughs> went racing there with my dad over the years. So we would have yes. our own dogs. Yeah. It's such a thrill to win, isn't it? It is. It's a great kick, yeah. Especially when you, you put in the work with them. It is. It's lovely. Now, how many, how many have you in the kennels at the moment? How many are you training? Um, I've just seven racing at the moment. Right. Um, and another one to start. I was in Dundalk there this morning, just trialling her, so she'll be next off the... Off good, the- good on you. And, yeah. and and what's a typical day, you know, from you get up in the morning with Greyhounds? Take us through, you know, exercise feed. How does it work on a daily basis? 
Yeah, well, I normally start at about seven. Um, if I have to go somewhere earlier, like this morning, it was half six. So, uh, you just basically let them out, um, clean out the kennels, give them their breakfast, then back out for a run again um, and settle them down. Then it will depend um, what the day will be then. I might be going for trials like today, mm. uh, fuel them to get them ready to race, or we maybe gallop them. Um, or there's always a trip to the vet in between times. Um, there's always something to do. I seem yeah. to be driving them around all the time. <laughs> so you're like cows, you're never off the road. You know what that's no, saying? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure, they're, they're like children as well. You know, you hear people with children. Even Earl Louise yeah. be talking, she is three and she's here, there and everywhere with them and parents as well, you know, bringing them to this, that and the other. So it's the same with it, with, 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 with your dogs as well. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, when when, when your, your thousand winner was at the dog, where was the first one? Where where were you racing? Um, it would have probably been Longford, I'd say, back yeah. then. Mm. Um, but you know, back then we were, I was racing and I was five nights a week, so it was mm. it was hard going at the start. Now, now and tracks, there's been a consolidation, as you, you mentioned, Longford. There's been a consolidation of tracks, of course, even in your time in the game. Where do you love to race? Where's your favourite track now? Um, well, I suppose Longford would have been my favourite track. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I, I really loved the people down there and the track itself was a lovely sort of family atmosphere. Mm. Mm. Um, so that would have been my favourite. But um, at the moment, I just race in Dundalk, which is also a fabulous facility. Yes. Um, yes. It's, it's a great place for you know, yeah. to bring owners. Um, so each track has its own its own attractions. Its you know? own merits, yeah. yeah and, absolutely. Uh, but Dundalk is wonderful. It, it really is. Like I say, I put my cars on the table. They know anyway. My father trained greyhounds and I was reared with them myself too. Oh, and I know okay. exactly what you're talking about. And we used to race in the old Dundalk track. Uh, yeah, Navin, yeah. Navin, which had its track then as well. Right. Shelburne yeah. Park. We were up in Celtic Park as well. We used to be round the country a bit with them as well. And I, oh. I, I, I know the game and it's a fantastic, fantastic sport. It, it really, really is. What's your favourite trap number? What number do you love your dog to be drawn in? Oh, they all like they're all different. Some of them like the inside, some like the outside. So um, it's you know it depends on each dog. They all have their own favourite mm. trap. So a dog will have its own. I know we. I remember well that we love the blue collar in number two. We always seem to have yeah. success from it. I don't know why, but uh, that was our favourite trap at the time. But you're right; they do all have the have their own way of of making their way from from the different traps. Yeah. Um, when you think of the game and and the people involved in it, of course, it's handed down. You got it from your dad and that as well. Are there many new people coming to the sport? Um, I suppose. Training-wise, maybe not so much. Again, like that, it would be children taking over from parents yes. and relations. Um, there would be a lot maybe of new owners coming in as syndicates. Mm. Um, you know, it went through a great time there of syndicates in the boom. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's nice to have a bit of new blood in, but I suppose yeah. they wouldn't be as hands-on. Mm. You nearly see the same faces. Yes, <laughs> yes, or yes. Or the next generation, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, but that's the way this is handed on. And, you know, you mentioned the dog is a great night out at the dogs. Of course, during the pandemic, that was restricted, but it, it's a real fun night out for people to go to. 
It is, absolutely. It's something different. Mm. Um, it's not just going to the pub or whatever. You know, you yes. can have a lovely meal yeah. and watch the horses and the dogs on yeah. Friday night. So it's a really good, it's a good value. Yeah, and, and they yeah. come thick and fast as well, the races. And sure, yeah. you know, sometimes I often, I, I've been to them myself in more recent times and you pick a number and your dog wins and the thrill of, of that as well. Now, That's the other it, thing yeah. about you, and uh, it's very important, I know, to you, and it's been an issue for the greyhound industry, as you know, in recent years, the rehoming of retired dogs and that. I see you're big time into that. Yeah, I love to. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, you know, you're responsible for, on, for the dogs from when they're racing to when they're finished racing. So it's important to look after them when their careers are over too. So um, the, the Irish Greyhound, the Retired Greyhound Trust, um, that's that's how we go through with rehoming. So um, they find them homes um, in, in Europe. Uh, the last two dogs that I retired actually went to America. Right. So they go all over the world. They've travelled a lot more than I have anyway, that's for sure. Yeah. So it's um it's lovely to get the photographs back of them when they're in their new homes and um they adapt so quickly mm. from being racing greyhounds to couch potatoes. I mean like it's, just, <laughs> it's so nice to get the pictures back. <laughs> and I with Facebook and everything we can keep in touch with them as well. Yes. Yes, and I know that's important and it has come a long way with the industry as well, uh, yeah. from dark days to make sure that this is done properly and that the uh, it's bona fides and the dogs have a long and happy life with their n- new is. new owners. In racing terms for people who are not familiar with what age do they start? What age does a puppy uh, run its first race at? Um, well, I suppose bitches and dogs will be different. So the bitches are smaller, so they sort of mature a bit quicker. So um, the one I had trialling this morning, I think she's about 16 months old. Mm. Um, but now she won't be racing for at least for six weeks. Okay. Um, the dogs, you probably start them a bit later, maybe at 18 months old. Okay. Let them mature before they... Yes. Know, and then, w- w- how long is a racing career? W- what age will they race until? Again, it depends. Um, if you're if you're injury free, relatively injury free, which thankfully the tracks are better, you know, better maintained now, and the sand surface, the, it leads to a longer life for them racing. So, um, like a lot of my dogs would run on until they're four, four and a half. I've mm. had five year old dogs racing, so yeah. it would depend on on you know whether they were injured or. Mm. Um, you know, or some of them just have enough of it and you know it yourself then it's time to them, for them to retire. Yes. Um, are they are they more injury prone because of the way they're built and the speed they operate at? I suppose it would probably be down to the speed. I mean, they're running at 40 miles an hour. So, um, you know, the, yeah, at that speed, I suppose you will. But the ca- the tracks now are sort of more cambered for them that they mm. get around the bend safely. And also with the races we have, you're talking about the trap draws, now we have seeding, so if the outside dog wants the outside, you know, you put a wide seed on him, so he'll yes. probably get trap six. And then the inside, so, and we have a middle seed now as well, so mm. you can sort of separate them. That, you know, there should be less trouble in yeah. this race now, which is great. So, um, so as you stand on the podium for number 1,000, you remember the first, you'll never forget the 1,000. A <laughs> couple of quick-fire questions at you. Okay. Your favourite Greyhound of all time. If they said Tina, there's one you had, one you trained more than most. Can you pick one? Uh, I, well, I've two. Can I have two? Yes, you can. You can, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, one of it was our own dog, Bolton Minister, who uh, my dad bought at the sales, and he just turned out to be the most amazing dog. He won the Cesar Witch for us in Mullingar. Oh yeah. Back in 1996, and the following year, then he ran up in the Midland Derby. He was just uh, gorgeous gorgeous dog mm. so I kept him until um, he was 13 like he, he never ah. left us he was a beautiful dog yes. um, and then 
another decade after that then I had Classy Show who won the Northwest Derby for us for local uh, John Butler in the Round Tower so that was great excitement it was um it was worth thirty five thousand to the winner. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah, and he went off at sixteen to one. So we'll <laughs> oh, them that day. <laughs> even better still, Tina, double whammy the prize money and and the odds. Yeah. And and oh, would, would would that be considered your biggest win? You know, in prestige. Yes, that yeah. was a classic. Yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. It was, it was just brilliant now you know it was a long mm. way up to Lifford but um, yes yeah it was worth going up oh surely uh, it was in, <laughs> it was indeed well you yeah. know what it's a fantastic achievement to reach a milestone of a thousand winners <laughs> and you know I, I, I wish you well and in the game it, it, there's a, I, I saw that back when we were involved as well women play an important role don't they in, in the oh, Greyhound yeah. game yeah yeah absolutely it's, it's sort of a level playing field you know yes no Disadvantage to being a woman, I think, because not at all. the advantages, whereas we might have a bit more patience. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, you know the dogs perform well for us. So all the old saying, patience is a virtue. Have it, it if is, you can. <laughs> seldom in a woman. Seldom in a woman. You're lucky, Tina. Never in a man. Never, <laughs> well, ever, ever. Yes, you're right. Of course, you're right. Anyway, continued success to you. Congratulations on the thousand. Here's to the next thousand. Thank you so much, Jerry. It was lovely to talk to you. And you too. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tina McGrain there, who trained our thousand winner at Dundalk Stadium recently. John, wait and missing you on late lunch this Thursday afternoon. Jerry. I think Louise will need more than mayo when she goes eating the snails. She may definitely bring a bucket, nerves of steel and a mouthwash, says a listener. <laughs> you bring all those, will you? Yeah, on top of why or sauce, mayonnaise, <laughs> garlic mayonnaise, <laughs> any other any other sauce I can find. We're getting them. We're getting them. Peter's going to uh, drop some snails into us next week or the week after, whenever we get them. And we will do the live taste test here on <laughs> We mightn't be live after it, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it. <laughs> you know, it sounds a great idea and the bravado on air and then when I hit the break there I started to think Jesus oh, what have I backed myself into now anyway David was on to say Jerry, did you ever eat sweetbreads did you ever Never. eat sweetbreads I have they're delicious as David <clears throat> they're delicious as David and they're hard to get Google sweetbreads there. Go on, Google it while you're there. Go on, I won't tell you. Just do a little Google sweetbreads. What are they? And find out. I won't tell you. Anyway, they are beautiful. The of an animal or something. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah. Have a look. Have a look. While you're looking there, I'll tell them about other queer things. You know, offal, I've said it before, I'm a great lover of offal. Uh, and, you know, they're often the cheapest cuts. Y- you can get liver, fresh lamb's liver. Oh, beautiful. We mentioned ox tongue there. Oxtail. Eddie Chute gave me oxtail in recent times and Kevin and the boys there. I made it. I'll tell you, the soup was just, the soup was just something else as well. Sir- Hearts. Sweetbreads. Yeah, have you got it? Pancreas. Thi- thyroid. Uh, yeah, thyroid? It's, yeah, it's around that area in the animal for sure. It, it's a delicacy. It is and hard to get, says David. I'm sure your local butcher can organise sweetbreads for you if you go to them. If you go to the big supermarkets, well, sorry, you don't get stuff like this. But your local butcher, your craft butcher, I'm sure will supply it to you. But lots of stuff like that. And, you know... Louisa, I've said it before, the new Irish, the people who've come to live with us from other parts of the world, they appreciate awful and the offcuts and that as well that we perhaps don't in this country. Our parents 
and grandparents knew what Liver, it was all about. Kidneys. Yes, because they hadn't the money to buy steaks or beef or anything like that, and that's what they lived off. But that so they disappeared. But I, I'm a great fan. I have to say, a great fan. Anyway, back to snails. <laughs> I used to eat periwinkles years ago. Do you ever have a periwinkle? No. Little sea snail used to go down, claw her head off the rocks there, pick them, and a little pin into the periwinkle and eat them out of the shell. Lovely. It's no oh, wonder you're the way you Lovely. Are. <laughs> <laughs> Did been, I say that out loud? <laughs> you're right, Louise. It's been said to me before. You're only repeating something I've heard before. A lot of stuff has got in this gob and through the system. Is there anything like you wouldn't eat? Yes, there is. And we're going to talk about it on Late Lunch shortly. I'm not going to say today, but there is a tripe. I wouldn't eat boiled tripe. I've eaten tripe, cow stomach, raw with salt. Love it dipped in salt, but not milk and onions. I'd puke. But there is something else and we are going to come back to it on the show. After three, soundtrack from my uh, movie, The Jazz Singer, and I visit Trader Lodge Alzheimer's Daycare Centre. Now, my soundtrack this week comes from the movie, The Jazz Singer. And as I mentioned yesterday on the show, Barry Manilow almost replaced Neil Diamond in the lead role because Diamond had back problems, he had to have surgery, and it was a, a fine cut thing. But anyway, he made it and Diamond took the lead part. Funny story for you. When Diamond was eventually filming, he struggled with scenes where he had to display anger and there was a number of them through the movie where he had to. During one of the breaks in filming, director Richard Fleischer spotted Diamond in a rage offset and rolled the cameras as Diamond then stormed into view and delivered a key angry scene brilliantly. Afterwards, Fleischer was curious as to what or why Diamond was so upset and he asked him and Neil Diamond replied I'd asked my band to play something that would make me angry and what did they play asked Fleischer a Barry Manilow song says Diamond no Manilow today on late lunch just pure Neil hey look at the way she's waving a sail it's a wondrous sight to see people hurry on down from Everett town have a look at the Robert E. Lee Proud and strong and made to be free Can't go wrong on the Robert E. Lee Got the sun in my eyes and the wind in my face And it's good just to be alive Gonna set out tonight for New Orleans I won't sleep till I arrive Short and sweet from the jazz singer today. Fantastic. Diamond at his best there on the Robert E. Lee from the movie. The soundtrack, as I've mentioned, was the big success of uh, the film. Uh, Well, the acting and everything else besides didn't go down too well with the critics. But mind you, it doubled its taking in uh, box office takings from what it took to make the movie so a modest profit they'd say more in words and song from the jazz singer uh, playing the song of the movie tomorrow afternoon on Late Lunch. We're heading to our final break this Thursday afternoon and when I tell you next on the show these words sum up what's coming. A dream becomes a reality as the new Trader Lodge Alzheimer's Daycare Centre opens in Drogheda and I'm there next. Well, you know, they say build it and they will come. And that really sums up what's happened in Drogheda with the Trader Lodge Daycare Centre for Alzheimer's. Because for years and years you've been hearing about it. And my God, it's a pleasure to be here today to see the dream become a reality. And we're going to talk to some of the people involved in delivering this wonderful facility for Drogheda, the greater Drogheda area and the northeast. Jerry Layden is chairman of the Drogheda branch of Alzheimer's. 
A very proud day, Jerry. A very proud day, to be honest. It's the culmination of 20 to 25 years' work. Now, I've only been involved in recent years, but there have been some tremendous people that have stuck with this program, drove it from the beginning. And to be honest, what we have at the end, it's people are out there pinching themselves, people are having tears in their eyes with you know, the pleasure and joy they have to see this final product. It's wonderful. The final push was a big ask. You know, the money involved in delivering this facility yeah. was substantial. Yes, it always was. Money always is very important. Fundraising and the community and businesses and have been so good year after year, to be honest with you. Leader then have been substantial. They came forward two years, three years ago and gave us a substantial 200,000. That really got us across the line. And then with all of the work on planning and building, we, could get, we moved in here, building in February of last year. And with great working relationships with all the builders and contractors and advisors, we've been able to turn it around just over a year. So it's been tremendous, you know, but a lot of support, right, left and centre, from everyone and anyone in the community. And you couldn't do it without them. Couldn't do it without them. You could cater for 25 people each day of the week here, Monday to Friday. It's a big building and it has to be staffed and people have to be looked after. Mm. And funding ongoing, of course, is continuing to be a challenge. But you're getting really substantial support now from the HSE. Yeah, and that has always been a challenge. But to be honest, uh, that has improved substantially. They saw the path we were on. They, they see the capacity we have now. They are, they are stepping up and they're giving us increased support. We will double the staffing here because the numbers will be more than double from previously. HSE are coming up and, and they'll continue to. They commit to continue to and we'll follow them up on that, of course. And, and that's the integral and they've been a great stakeholder you know, over the last couple of years as we have uh, brought these plans to fruition. So important though. Fundraising will be ongoing and of course you have uh, very generous benefactors too. Yes, we have a lot of great benefactors, you know, benefactors day to day, week to week, some substantial benefactors, some of them not really wanted to be known, but all very kind. But ongoing fundraising, while the HSE give us support, there's always a level of funding that's needed from the public, and people like Anne Short and Olheny and them will be out there with myself, you know, continue to look for that support, but now we'll be looking for it and we'll have a live centre that will be giving a great service to the community alongside it. Jerry, it's a fantastic day. I wish you well. You're the man at the helm here at this point in time. Good luck to you for the future and well done to all of Thanks, Jerry, and thanks for your support and all the, all the coverage you've given it over the time, as, as has the media and, in Drogheda and the people in Drogheda. You know, it's, a, it's been a pleasure to be involved. Pleasure. Jerry, thank you, Jerry Layden. Let me turn to Noel Heaney, former chairman here as well, and now involved at national level with Alzheimer's. Noel, you're smiling from ear to ear. You've been uh, saying to me for a long time, you won't believe it when you see what we're going to actually deliver here in Trader Lodge. Yeah, I hope you're impressed, Jerry. I uh, am. It's, it's, it's a dream come true for us, Jerry. Uh, I remember um, Anne Short asked me, Noel, will you take over the role of chairman? 2016, I said, now, does anybody else want this? I don't want to come in and step on toes. No, you'll be welcome. So Patsy Rice welcomed me with open arms, and, and it's great. Poor Patsy is two years dead tomorrow, and it's a fitting tribute to Patsy that we have this open. So in 2018, somebody must have saw something in us in Drada here because they asked me would I join the board of ASI, and I said, certainly I will, because that would give us a link. Because heretofore, the, the relationship wasn't the best between ASI and Drogheda, shall we say, and branches in general. I remember my first board meeting was October 2018. I said, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here today, but I said, we're on a mission in Drogheda. We're building a new daycare centre. And there were eyebrows raised. 
but I'm sure they're not raised anymore. We, we've got there, we've done it, you know. Yeah, that link is important for sure, Noel. You've taken me on a tour of the building here. It's just gorgeous, it really is. You have a wonderful facility. And, you know, a place now that people can come and feel safe and comfortable and warm and looked after. Absolutely, Jerry. Um, catering for 25 people is phenomenal. And we'll probably end up maybe opening six days a week with, with the, the demand is out there and is rising. And we're very privileged, I think, to be carrying on the work done by people over the years, over the last 20-odd years. I feel very privileged today. Besides the building here, you have beautiful surrounds and gardens and big plans there for the big future. Big plans, uh, the, yeah, a nice century garden. And we have funding in place for that. Uh, so that's our next project. We, we don't stand still. We don't sit on our laurels. Uh, but it keeps us busy and it keeps it. We enjoy it. We really enjoy it. Yeah. Noel, well done to you and you, playing Jerry. a big part on this journey to yeah, today. Delighted. Delighted. Yeah. I'm proud to do it, Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. Well done to you, Noel Heaney. Well, I see her smiling. And, you know, when I think of this place, I think of you, Anne Short, oh, because <laughs> all the years with the buckets and the fundraising and the lobbying, and you joined me on late lunch way back when this all began. Well, Anne, how are you feeling? Oh, Jerry, I, I, I was talking to someone out there and the tears started coming. I said, I, I have to go. I'm sorry, I just have to go. I just can't believe we are here, Jerry. It, it was a long, long road, I have to tell you. And as, as Noel mentioned, there's been so many people out there. Actually, when you come in the door, the first thing you see is all our chairmen up, up overhead and people like Aidan Cullen. And we lost poor Patsy. We lost poor Jenny. All people who have given many, many years to, to this project and only for them, like some of them I wouldn't have got involved with, only for them. And then again, like, you know, it, it, it's just it, it's, it's just word of mouth going out there and asking people, would you like to help us? Mm. And so many good people like Jerry Layden, I'd say it was the hardest thing he ever did to say yes to me. Noel is the same. Noel was, he tells people, can't say no to this woman, you know. But um, do you know what I mean? We need all that help and we, we got it. And thank, I have to say a big thank you to Jerry Layden because he pushed this for the last two years for us. And only for that, we wouldn't be here today. He keeps saying to me, yeah, but only for you, Anne, getting the money, we wouldn't be here today, you know. So there's a big team of us, Jerry, and I have to say, each and every one of us played our part, but it's just fantastic. Just fantastic. Did you ever lose faith or, you know, think to yourself, we're never going to achieve this, when you were getting the euros in the buckets? And you told me the figure that you needed ultimately yeah, to deliver yeah, this place yeah. and when I saw where you were at it was creeping up yeah. slowly and slowly you never give up oh, sure, look, you were going to build it for me when you won the lotto I'm still waiting for the lotto money to I'm come. still waiting to win it <laughs> but um, yeah no no it was tough it was very tough at times and, and as Noel said our relationship with ASI wasn't always the best um, it was tough kind of trying to say to them, like, you know, this money has to go to Drahada, so, like, we can't be raising money to go to Dublin. That's not fair. So, you know, I suppose human nature, we always have our little arguments, but we get through it, and we have a fairly good relationship with them now, thank God. And I think they're proud of us now that we have achieved what we're doing, you know, because a couple of years back, because we didn't have the money, and they were kind of saying, well, we really don't need a building, you know, but we need services. But, you know, where do you provide services if you don't have a building? This was my argument to them, you know, and lucky enough they they stayed with us and they supported us a lot better now and i think they're very proud of us at the moment you should be proud of yourself too for carrying the flame 
uh, through the years when it looked an impossible dream. And when you look round you here, and there's tours going on here today, many people coming to see what's in place here on the north side of Drogheda. And you've put in place something here for today, tomorrow and the future yeah, that's going to benefit yeah. so many, Anne. As somebody said to me recently, you know, for me, this wouldn't have started. Only my dad had Alzheimer's. So that was the first step for me and the support that I got from Lawrence's Gate, even though there wasn't a lot in it, it was only one room and he was well fed, he was well looked after and the staff were just fantastic. And I felt I needed to give back and that's how I got involved, basically, Jerry. And it's still a very, very precious project for me and I don't think I'll ever stop till I go. <laughs> So, yeah. Ah, don't be thinking like that at yeah. all today. You have much, much more to give and contribute as well. Well done to you, Thank Anne George. Thanks, Jerry. And Jerry, just can I just say to your your listeners, if they're out there, if they haven't got an invitation from us, it's not because I forgot. Purely because I couldn't get phone numbers or email addresses. But everyone is welcome down. We're here right up till Sunday afternoon, so we want everyone to come to see it because the town of Drada and surrounding areas they are the people who built this by supporting us. Wonderful, wonderful story to finish late lunch today. Congratulations to all. If you want to see it, the link road between Term and Feckin Road and Green Hills, it's on your right-hand side. Tomorrow on late lunch, Nadia Vavro is back with us. We hear how Slav's getting on. Remember my 40 days and nights for Slav last year? He fights on. Damien Owen's lovely book about ageing. Tara Walker's in the kitchen. David Sheehan does the sport. We've your TV theme and comedy on Friday. Eddie Caffrey's coming next. Stay with us here on LMFM Radio. See you tomorrow, 1.30. We leave you in the company of the brilliant Aretha Franklin. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drada, Dundalk and Cavan. Check out the new sporty and spacious Renault Arcana in petrol and full hybrid. Guaranteed delivery, low AP or finance and 48-hour test drive. Visit blackstonemotors.ie. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.